Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm your host, Anthony Corcoran. Australian Basketball Coach. I'm here today at the State Basketball Centre in Melbourne with Ian Stacker from the South East Melbourne Phoenix. And welcome Ian. Thank you very much. Uh, great to have you on my new podcast. Uh, you're my second interviewer. So, uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm still uh, learning the art here. So um, I, I, one of the things um, that sort of I mentioned to you off air just there before, one of the things uh, where I first met you was in uh, 1984 uh, after an under-18s nationals uh, train on um, camp and um, some of the things you had us doing there after five days at nationals, so I was thinking, geez, like I wasn't ready for that. So, uh, so I wanted to um, sort of ask you, you've been involved for, with basketball for a long period of time as a coach uh, at a high level too. and. Um, has your coaching style changed at all over that 30 year, thirty plus year period? Yeah, I think it definitely has has changed. Uh, uh, you, um, as you get older, you get to have, uh, I guess, some some uh, some data on whether things that you've been preaching have worked or not. Uh, particularly with young kids that you think might go on to be players, you get to actually see whether they did go on to be players, and uh, and those who. Um, you know, you didn't think would turn out to be okay. Turn out to be uh, turn out to be pretty good. So you have those experiences, which, which I think changes your uh, approach to um, talent ID along the way. And I have to say, certainly my time at the AIS uh, philosophically um, had a big change in how I thought uh, Australia needed to play the game to uh, be able to compete um, internationally more successfully. Okay, which was you know the uh, the you know how we how we shoot it, how we create a shot in our in our offense. Um, had a big change in my own personal philosophy with that um, because as an NBL coach with Townsville in particular, uh, I thought any shot was a good shot if the players had their feet set and uh, felt confident about it. But uh, I think um, at the AIS in particular, as I delved into you know the trends of basketball and and uh, and what people were doing to get shots. Uh, a greater appreciation, I guess, of what is a good shot and uh, how to create good shots. Mm, yeah, it's one of the things that you know I think um, I remember from from you coaching was that you were at Townsville there for eight years or so. Yeah, and um, that was a real boom time in Townsville, wasn't it? Like a yeah. multi-year sellouts uh, at the stadium there down near the casino there. So yeah, well, I think it was a sellout. Um, you know, when Mark Bragg was head coach, it was uh, a sellout all the time. Certainly in my years there, we all always had a had uh, the full house it was uh, it was a great place to coach you yeah. know like it had uh, uh, great community support um, game night was always uh, you know um, uh, an event uh, it's probably a hard place to recruit players to it wasn't the number one choice for for uh, for a young basketballer to go to, to Townsville but um, you know I think we did a good job in the later years of actually developing some local talent to, to help uh, kind of fix that problem yeah, and, and looking back at um, you know that time in Townsville what was that sort of legacy now that the crocs out there you know, yeah. like what was the legacy you think from uh, coaching up in Townsville at that time um, well 
don't know if there was a legacy now that it's gone. Uh, but, um, you know, what I tried to do um, was, uh, again, I, I felt it important that we as a franchise tried to develop as many local kids as we could um, because uh, for two reasons. I thought that it was it was going to always difficult for us to get the blue chip um, Australian player to come and live in Townsville, so better if we develop our own. Um, and just, uh, I think, philosophically, uh, it's kind of what I believed in developing young talent anyway. So, um, you know, like the Cedar Brothers and, uh, you know, Peter Crawford was probably our best example. Uh, I think Todd Blanchfield came through the the program we set up there with the Sharp Start program in the, in the last few years that I was there. So uh, I guess if there was a legacy, it would be um, just a belief in if you do the work and uh, put a program in place that that um, uh, it focuses on player development, you can actually churn out some good players at the end of it, which I yeah. think was what we did. Yeah, for sure. Um, when you started coaching, um, I know you used to play as well, And uh, but when you started coaching, did you have a coaching mentor? And uh, what did that relationship look like? Yeah, I, I guess uh, uh, my junior basketball here in Melbourne... Um, you know, in those days, I guess uh, um, the the local domestic competition that was played out at, at Nutter Whiting was, you know, the Nutter Whiting Stadium was really the first one of the big one of the area. Before that, we used to play in, you know, school halls and things around the place. But I played for a team called the Vermont Vultures and uh, our team uh, won 15 grand finals in a row, you know, like uh, so from under 12s to under, eight, under 18s, we won every grand final. And... Um, that uh, that style of play that we played was a pressing, you know, fast-breaking style of play. We probably didn't realise it was at the time, but that's how we played. Yeah. Some of the things we used to do to other teams would be frowned upon now with mercy rules and stuff like that. But um, uh, so Jack Nicey was a coach of our team there. I think, and if you go to another wedding stadium, uh, one of the grandstands I think is named after him. Uh, I think he had a big influence on. Um, on my uh, beliefs in how to play the game, as far as uh, you know, like aggressive defensively and free-flowing offensive game, but also uh, a big influence on trying to make sure it was enjoyable for everybody, for the players. You know, we had still have great mates from that from that team. Um, I think as I got into professional coaching, though, um, at the end of my playing career, uh, I think that uh, some of the college coaches that I got to. Uh, I guess entertain as my, in my role with basketball. Victoria had uh, significant influences. Lou Olson, who was at Arizona, um, came out a few years and developed quite a good relationship with him. And uh, Roy Williams, who was at Kansas at the time, uh, I went back there often and uh, and tried to learn as much as I could from from him as well. So those two coaches probably big picture influences were, were the ones that uh, had the most early on in my career for sure yeah for sure have been involved for so long like is there I, I guess some things uh, some things that go around come around and, and, yeah. and what's old is new again and, and that sort of thing too but is there anything that you think that you've learned recently that you sort of think wow I sort of wish I knew that a bit earlier on or um, yeah absolutely and, I, and again I'd probably put that down to my time at the institute um which now is six years ago, because uh, I've been coaching high school kids for the last six years. Um, but just the importance of um, uh, practicing 
the skills of the game in a competitive situation rather than uh, on zero. I think we do way too much uh, on zero stuff, whether it's one on zero, five on zero. Um, Adam Gorman, who was the uh, skill acquisition expert at the AIS, I think is now at one of the universities in Queensland, um, really uh, had a big influence on on uh, on uh, me and how we practice things. You know, like it's it's so much more difficult to make a layup when someone's trying to stop you from making a layup than yeah. it is uh, to be able to just. You know, they're totally different things. You know, about the only time you don't have a contested layup is in the warm-ups. You know, of a game. So yeah. the importance of one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three play would be the thing that uh, I think. In the, the last few years, uh, I learned at the AIS and I've really taken into the to the school program that I've been working in for the last six years and as of, uh, of coaching on the run but trying to make things as, as competitive as possible all the time. Mm. And you think, um, you know, just looking at kids who play, like I think um, one of my theories is I don't think there's enough one-on-one, two-on-two or kids just play pick-up sort of style basketball. Do you sort of see that as well? Yeah, I don't. I don't think they play enough pickup, um, and uh, you know, there's good pickup and there's bad pickup. You know, like if they just want to stand there and argue for you know half an hour about a foul, then that's bad pickup. But um, what I always encourage kids to do is to play a lot of one-on-one, two-on-two in their general play. Like, I don't know uh, what it's like in Queensland, but a good kid here in Melbourne would would play rep basketball on a Friday night. Um, probably have two practice sessions with that team. Uh, usually play domestic basketball on a Saturday and maybe have one practice session with that team. Uh, the really elite kids are probably getting, um, uh, you know, maybe one or two sessions with the SDP program, maybe early morning stuff. So they get a lot of uh, instruction in those practice sessions, like the Friday night teams and the Saturdays are usually five on five, trying to work to get ready to try and win the next game. The SDP stuff is more individual development, but again, I think uh, uh, sometimes they can turn into uh, too much coaching, not enough just letting them play. So I think the more the kids can find time in all those cracks to play just uh, you know, with some mates, one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-two, I think that's good time. It's all trial and error. And I, you know, the, the good thing about Melbourne is the kids get a lot of good games uh, even the domestic games are good and they can trial and error stuff in those games. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest reason why there's been so many good kids come out of here is being the number of games that they play that are high quality mm. games. I know my time at the AIS, that was a frustrating thing for me with that group is there was no one to play in Canberra. Oh, right. You know, so you play yourselves all the time yeah. and that gets old. Um, whereas uh, the, the kids here in Melbourne get every Friday a really tough game to play most of the domestic games are pretty good if you're a good player you're usually playing at a good domestic competition as well mm. so um, yeah yeah. Um, you talked about that time that you had at the AOS as a head men's coach how do you determine when you're in that sort of role like what direction you take the program and, and what the, the content looks like you know for the players yeah the uh, you know philosophically the national coach is supposed to pr- provide uh, the direction uh, when I came in there in 2010 um, I think uh, so it's 2010 a world championship year I think it is and then the 12 was the Olympic year is that right? I think so. Yeah so uh, 
Brett Brown was just winding up as the uh, as the national coach, and um, there was a period there of uh, quite a few months where there was no national coach, and that co- coincided about the time I started at the institute. So, for those uh, six months or so, I. I guess as the AIS coach, you're providing the technical direction for the program, and um, uh, so um, and then when uh, Andre got appointed national men's coach, that was a philosophical change again. Where that basically I was out the door because he was coming in as a new AIS head coach in theory. Um, it's one of those things where I've uh, proposed to Basketball Australia several times now that uh, there need there should be a. Um, a technical panel of, of uh, preferably past national coaches who provide the technical direction for things like yeah. the AIS program and the national junior teams because the reality is the national men's coach is the last thing he's thinking of doing. He's just thinking about winning the next tournament. <laughs> and, uh, they, they, and really, by the time anything they want to instill in the program comes through, there's someone else coaching the national team by then. They're usually about four or eight-year appointments. So... Uh, I think uh, a panel that is providing that technical direction would be a much better approach. So uh, the answer to your question is that it's kind of been... The direction has been a little bit ad hoc, I think. Uh, A lot of it left up to the AIS coach to kind of make up his mind what he's doing. Um, And often what they're doing isn't distributed well enough amongst the basketball community, whereas uh, a more formal uh, process, I think, would help the overall community get an idea of what they are like I, I, when I came in there there were things that they were teaching there that I'd never heard of there were good things yeah. but I should have heard about it as a coach out there in the community I should, you should know what they're doing at the AS. yeah yeah for sure um, I think one of the things also that you've um, you know become known as a specialist in is shooting and mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to just ask you in terms of what you see nowadays um, you know, what sort of process do you do work with athletes in terms of shooting? Yep. And um, what are the, some of the problems that you see, you know, with uh, kids who are either just starting to play, but maybe also kids who are playing a bit of rep or something like yep. that, uh, and just maybe, you know, bad technique that has just been uh, gotten through to a point but uh, might not help them get to the next level. Yeah, yeah I think I, uh, like I've always... Um you know, I can remember doing some shooting stuff with Peter Crawford when he was a kid. So it's been something that I've uh, uh, always believed that um, someone's uh, shooting technique can be improved. Uh, when I came in as the AIS coach, um, I was on a mission, I guess, to improve our shooting as a as a as a men's program. Um, as I looked at our, because that's kind of what you're supposed to be doing as the AIS coach, and again, there was no one else telling me what to do, so I thought, this is what I'm going to do. Um, as I looked at our results internationally, uh, our team three-point shooting percentage was about where we finished in a tournament. So if we were like the eighth three-point best shooting team, we finished about eighth. Right. Now, and you know, there's other stats that come into it, but I, I felt that was the area that... Uh, uh, we could make some significant improvement on, and uh, happily the boomers have made a lot of big improvements mm. uh, on that as well. Um, so I kind of got into um, just uh, using again Adam Gorman as a as a sounding block for the things that I philosophically felt made a difference to shooting. Um, one of the problems for kids is that every single coach has a different view on what. A good shooting technique is, mm. you know. Some say, "Oh, the feet aren't here, the hands aren't here, the eyes, you know." The, you know and 
And uh, so it can be very confusing for players because they get so many different views on how to do it. And I don't think there's ever been a national view on it either, you know, which is kind of what I tried to do in that brief time I was at the AS, was put out some stuff on this is, these are the key areas that I think make a difference. And, uh, um, you know, hopefully, uh, if we get these things right, these three, you know, call it set, load and shoot, you get those three phases of the shot correct, then uh, you have a chance of have a de- having a decent shooting technique. But from a technical point of view, um, I think some of the issues are the size of the ball that we use with young kids, um, the height of the too ring, big. too big, yeah. the height of the ring that we use for most small kids. is uh, So a lot of the... Um, the first time kids are starting to play the game, they can't even make the ring, so there's all sorts of bad habits that they dis- develop at the start. And uh, I think that's something that we could have a, a better national approach to. Um, I see uh, in, in Melbourne, um, like I've got a seven-year-old and a six-year-old, turn six tomorrow, um, who, uh, so I go and see them play, and uh, the seven-year-old's playing on a full-size ring most of the time with a size six ball. They should be using a size, you know, at least a size five, mm. and so they can't reach the, reach the ring. So you get all sorts of bad habits starting at the start. Um, my observation over the the last, you know, since I left the AIS, and I've been doing a lot of shooting camps, and have been coaching high school boys and girls for the last six years is there are um, pretty consistent issues with either sex that are, that are different. Um, girls tend to start with the ball almost under their chin or on their shoulder, up, up way too high, and they have no uh, vertical lift to their shot. Yeah. Boys tend to dip, dip it, drop it down to their knees before they lift it up. Those two issues, uh, to me, um, set up the the next issue which is you know how high you lift it vertically i know you can't see me on your podcast but how high you lift it vertically when you're going into your shooting action um one of the things that i worked on with adam gorman um you know i believed that uh that if you loaded what i call lifted the ball nice and high that that helped get the ball to go high all right and the higher it goes uh, the more chance it has of going in. So basically I said to Adam, I want you to go away, do a little test on everybody, do some research and come back and tell me I'm right, yeah. you know. And uh, so he went away and, and did his uh, uh, testing and he looked at a lot of video footage of um, the past Olympic and World Championship events and uh, he came back and uh, he said, look, there's no evidence to support that by loading it higher you actually uh, shoot it higher, but what is really obvious is by loading it higher, you get it over defenders easier, all right? And he looked at a lot of video of the Americans, the Europeans, and the Australians playing, and uh, the Australians tended to kind of lift the ball to their forehead, the uh, Europeans just above their head, and the Americans really much higher. And when you think about the sort of people that they have to shoot it over, uh, you know, like the Americans tend to play against the much better athletes longer, and so to get it over in a contested situation, they need to lift it higher. Um, so that became uh, like a foundation for, um, again, trying to emphasise that vertical element of going from what I call the starting or the set position up to a, a load, and this vertical movement is, I think, the the main issue for boy, junior boys and girls. A lot of them 
will the girls will start it up in front of their shoulder or in front of their chin and just push it straight out from there. Okay, so in a contested situation, they really can't get their shot off. Boys will tend to dip it, so they tend to drop it down too low. And when that, so when they lift it up, they only get up about in front of their face and then they start pushing it forward. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, if both of them just started with it in front of their chest and just lift it ver- lifted it vertically, um, they would have more chance, I think, of... Uh, of getting it over defenders, getting it higher, having a smoother flow to their shot. I kind of compare a good shot to a good punch. Like a professional boxer is in a nice, comfortable stance and will just go pow with an explosive, quick movement. A pub fighter tends to, you know, swing their arms out to the side and, and don't have anywhere near the impact. That, to me, is what a lot of kids do with their shooting techniques. They have a lot of unnecessary movements that... When you have to shoot it quickly, uh, impact on the accuracy on mm. it. So it's a little bit about getting a starting position and a finishing position that are nice and compact, having minimal amounts of movement. Um, the other thing that I think we uh, are a nation of set shooters. Uh, we don't teach jump shots, and I don't think most people would know the difference between a set shot and a jump shot. And it's one of those things where I think. Each coach would have a different view on what is a set shot and what is a jump shot. That's one of the things we can't agree on. But um, an American kid who walks in like like uh, John Robeson, you know, he, he's shooting jump shots. He's getting off the ground about a you know like a foot in the old days. Whereas um, Kyle Adnam is a set shooter. You see, he only jumps a couple of inches when he shoots it. Yeah. Uh, and you can still shoot, shoot set shots and have a high jump which is what we should be emphasising to young kids is getting a higher jump so that then as they get stronger, they can then start to shoot that ball at the apex of their jump, which essentially is a jump shot Mm. to me. Um, So identifying set shots and jump shots, understanding that they need to be able to do both and uh, the appropriate age for introducing jump shots, which I think is about 18 Years old. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of found with their AI skills, they were getting them kind of strong enough to be able to shoot jump shots out to a particular range. Yeah. 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 I, I agree totally with you about the jump shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, there's far too much set shots yeah. that you see, but um, yeah, that's that's good stuff. Um, I mean, in terms of, um, say, what you saw at the FIBA World Cup just recently, like um, in terms of concepts or style of play and that sort of thing, is there anything there that you sort of think um, either we're um, a bit behind the ball or um, maybe we're doing well in comparison to other countries? Uh, I, I thought the Boomers really played really played well. Um, they uh, uh, they shot the ball well. You know, like again, if you, I don't know what they ended up shooting from the three-point line, but I, I think I looked at it at one point and they were like, 47, 48%, which uh, the benchmark that I'd kind of set as the AS coach for our national junior teams and had proposed to the Boomers was 40% is the benchmark you need to get to. And uh, they shot the ball really well. Um, what, what stands out to me as a trend is uh, everyone's gone um, layups or threes and, uh, and uh, kind of given up that mid-range jumper. And I think players are going to get so good at that mid-range jumper now that they're going to have to find something else. You know, that was, you know, like France looked pretty comfortable shooting the mid-range jumper to me. They didn't, the way that we were guarding the on-ball screens and they would, um, what they call snake off the, you know, the, the way the defence played it, 
they're pretty comfortable hitting that shot, and mm. uh, uh, so that's almost as, was almost as good a percentage as the layup. Um, so I think uh, how teams defend on-ball screens will evolve. Because um, I'm not convinced how they're guarding it now is the best way. It's one of the things we're discussing here with coaches at the, with the Phoenix about when we're playing. Because um, uh, everyone almost defends it the same way. Mm. Um, so that would be the trend that I see. I think that mid-range jumper, runners, those kind of things are going to come uh, far more into play. And that's one of the things that players, that when three-point shooting first started to come in vogue, uh, there are only people, who, few people who could shoot it well. Now everybody can shoot it well. Okay, and I think that's going to be the same with a mid-range jumper. I think the guys who can shoot it really well now are going to mm. be valuable. So everyone will start to shoot it, work on that as yeah. well. And do you think it, like, especially the um, on-ball pick-and-roll type situation, is that something that um, you can have a f- philosophy about, but then you've got to you know, play with the players you've got yeah. and, and maybe adjust your philosophy? Yeah, you definitely got to be adaptable, I, I think, um, because there's so many different ways of playing it and so many different types of players that you might have on your team you've got to be able to uh, I think adjust sometimes on the fly in a game um, but also practice different ways of of guarding it Uh, switching's the best way if you've got two guys about the same size you can guard two players about the same size then that's the easiest way to guard it but you don't always have that luxury like Andrew Bogut and Paddy Mills you know switching becomes hard if they're guarding similar sized players is that uh, and yeah, we're getting into that discussion then about positionless players and and that sort of thing. And is that something you're seeing more of now? Or? No, I think there's um, everybody can shoot it better now. I think that's the you know I think you still got point guards, shooting guards, small forwards, power forwards, and centers. It's just that they can all shoot it a bit better now, um, and maybe the fours can handle the ball a little bit better, but. Every team's still got a point guard bringing the ball up the floor, um, and they've still got twos and threes running the lanes. Uh, you know, maybe everyone's skills are getting a little bit better, but um, I think that uh, uh, from a balanced perspective, um, I think you're always going to still have those traditional roles on a, on a team. And uh, so the, the one, someone whose traditional whose role is to play closer to the basket and rebound and putbacks is not going to be able to dribble it as well as someone whose role is to bring it up the floor and run the offense, you know. So uh, I think that uh, we kind of got, I think, uh, in those late 80s too much into trying to develop players who could play all five positions. And the anticipation then was that everyone was going to have to play all five positions, but the reality is they haven't. You know, they've got to be able to shoot it from outside. But uh, you still have, um, I think, those traditional roles still. I think and I, I think they'll still stay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now that you're with the um, South East Melbourne Phoenix, what sort of, uh, what's your role within the, the coaching group? Yeah, I'm one of the assistant coaches. So uh, Judd Flavel and I are both uh, assistant coaches. Yeah, and do you guys um, split up like tasks across the coaching group, or do you have um, any special? No, only things? from a from a scouting perspective, um, we're uh, both got four teams to scout. Um, what I'm, I think, what I was brought in for uh, was that um, obviously it's Simon's first year as a head coach and I think both he and uh, Tommy Greer, the CEO, wanted thought it would be beneficial to have an experienced coach with him. Mm. Um, so that's clearly me, the old experienced coach 
so I'm kind of there to, uh, I guess, uh, offer some of that experience from from uh, from my time in the league, um, and. Um, you know, for me, it's. Um, I feel like I'm catching up because I haven't been in the NBL for uh, probably 10 years, I think, maybe even more than 10 years. I think the last one I had was with Al Westover as assistant coach before I went to the AIS, which was 2010, 2009, you know. So uh, in that time, the basketball hasn't changed that much, but the lingo has changed. You know, it's like a whole new language yeah. that they use now. Um, so I haven't been much value in that regard. I'm not much value in the... Um, knowing the other teams and the other offences and stuff at the start, whereas in the past I would have, you, you just know all that stuff from being in the league. Yeah. So I'm coming from a, a, a fair way back, but that's where Juddy is really good. He's you know been in the league now for uh, five or six years, I think, and he's on top of everything, as is Simon. So uh, they're way ahead of me in that regard. Um, I'm here as uh, someone who has some experience of being in the league for, I don't know, 20, 23 years or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lingo thing is one thing that I uh, pick up on as well. And I, yeah. What are, like, two or three of the things that you've heard recently and you're sort of like, what's that? Oh, I made everything. You know, there's uh, there's rifle, rifle action, DHOs, and uh, what else have we got? Um, uh, rifle... What's a gets rifle, right? rifle action is kind of like basically a flash cut oh, up yeah. the elbow and or, right. you know, uh, whatever there's smash screens and uh, uh, can't remember so I was writing down some of this stuff as I was trying to fill out my uh, scout stuff before but it's uh, yeah, even when I read our practice plan, sometimes I get a little confused with some of the stuff that's written down there. Like I'd ask, "What is this?" You know, uh, uh, over under and uh, zipper cuts. Zipper cuts were just starting to come in when I was uh, first in it. So yeah, so every, every instant, everything that occurs in a two-on-two situation now has some sort of name. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I'm still so yeah, I'm still catching up with it. <laughs> Again, what are, I guess South East Melbourne's a new club. Um, what are the things that you guys would do in that situation where you're starting with a new club, new team, um, mm-hmm. in terms of building the culture for the group? Yeah, um, I think uh, we haven't got deep into the culture other than um, talking about it and, uh, uh, you know, uh, constantly just trying to um, be conscious of the fact that we're representing a... Uh, you know, they call it the heartland of basketball. Like I said, when I grew up here in this area, in Nunawading, um, this is really where basketball in Victoria grew from, grew from. Grew from. You know, there was strong basketball in the city with, you know, Melbourne Tigers, used to be the Melbourne Church kind of was, but most of the yeah. people who were playing were coming from the eastern suburbs, and it's uh, it's just continued to grow from there. When I played at Nunawading, some of the big associations that are out here now are, were just domestic clubs that mm-hmm. have grown into big associations like Knox, Dandelong, um, you know, uh, Bulleen, uh, Eltham, Diamond Valley, all kind of grew out of that Nutterwadding uh, basketball stadium. So just being conscious of the history of the area and trying to uh, uh, represent um, basketball 
is what kind of like the basketball era is kind of what we're trying to be about and how, how the game should be played uh, it's a kind of blue collar area I think that we want to show that we're going to play hard all the time not give in uh, be focused on the defense be good teammates uh, all the all the basic stuff um, but really just trying to also tap into the um, uh, the basketball um, history of the area and the knowledge of basketball pe- of people in the area like this is an area where if people who have come to the game know the game you don't have to kind of introduce them to the area they know the game and uh, you know um, you can see how we go with our game night what we present game night um, because I think sometimes the game nights can turn in a bit of a disco like Townsville was a classic example of that uh, but that was a crowd that was not that experienced in basketball. Um, so how we involve the crowd in the games, I think, will be interesting to see as well. Yeah, and uh, first game Thursday night. Yep. Um, Cross town rivalry. Yep. <laughs> How's that going to go? Should be interesting. You know, they, like they've named it the Throwdown, which oh, right. uh, which uh, perhaps highlights what they're hoping for. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, but I was you know, Brian Gorgian's assistant coach for nine years down here with the South East Melbourne Magic and um, the Melbourne Tigers uh, and us had uh, quite a good uh, rivalry going. And um, I, think, uh, I think in our first year, well, the Magic in our first year, we had a big, you know, fight with... <laughs> The Tigers out at uh, out at Knox Stadium in the preseason, and fists were flying, and uh, you know things. It was it was quite a heated um, moment that I think set up the next ten years of those two teams playing each other, you know, and uh, uh, and what it meant to each other. Um, and I, I can see how that could not that there'll be a big fight on uh, Thursday <laughs> night, but I can see how uh, both teams are going to want to try and stamp their. Uh, authority on the game and um, how uh, you know the players will hopefully you know try to take a stand against each other in that regard mm. and uh, call it the throwdown I think is uh, <laughs> almost like throwing fuel on the fire we'll yeah. see yeah, yeah we'll see yeah. what happens before we finish we'll just do a quick time out which is 60 quick fire questions oh right? okay 60 okay. <laughs> or 60 <laughs> seconds of uh, oh, okay. questions yeah. so the first one um, swish or bank uh, bank on the wings swish uh, from uh, everywhere else uh, you can't ignore the, the the science of it going in off the backboard more than straight through the ring if you can use the backboard yeah. transition three or quick hit uh, quick hit absolutely full, full or half court press uh, both depending on what you need <laughs> are you a uh, fist bump guy or a high five sort of person uh, high five, yeah. And with your coaching, are you a whiteboard sort of guy or a magnet? Whiteboard, yep. Do you like music during training? No. <laughs> hate the music. <laughs> hate it everywhere. So I'm from Queensland, as you know. State of origin, Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, Queensland, only because I lived there for nine years and uh, never really got into the game. I must admit I'm an AFL guy. <laughs> And uh, last one, what's your favourite quote? I don't know that I have a favourite quote. Uh, <laughs> one of my mates once sitting around a barbie, you know, as we said, when you grow, you grow. <laughs> and we never really understood what it meant. Uh, I think it's something to do with experience, I don't know. But uh, when I you say quotes, and i, I got to think that was... Uh, 
that's all that comes into my mind. I think probably the best book that I've read with quotes on basketball was uh, The Art of War. All right. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Ian, I just wanted to thank you for your time today. It's been great uh, catching up with you and talking to you and, and um, all the very best for the season ahead. Okay, I'm thank sure you. I'm sure you guys will um, make an impression uh, first year in the league. So uh, looking forward to seeing how that goes. No worries. Thank you. Um, right. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me through my email at australianbasketballcoach at gmail.com. That's australianbasketballcoach, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Also, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at OzBballCoach and also on Facebook with Australian Basketball Coach. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening. (laughs) 